This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Coming up on today's show, we'll chat with a couple more of Alberta's new mayors, the mayor of Banff and the mayor of Red Deer. Trudeau's tax plan, well, that's not going to pay down record levels of debt. We could be headed for some real trouble. Speaking of debt, Canadians took on more debt during COVID-19, and they're saying it's really starting to affect their quality of life. All right, talking about our provincial, our, our municipal elections province-wide that took place, of course, on Monday night. We just had a discussion about how uh, a lot of women were elected to councils and mayor's chairs right across the province, and we're going to continue that discussion now with one of those women. Corey Damano has been... Uh, I'm having a tough time how to, how to describe this. She's been elected mayor of Banff. Let's put it that way. Um, Corey joins us now. Uh, Corey, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time, and Congratulations. Hi, Shay. Thank you for having me. And yes, thank you. It's it's surreal to be called mayor-elect. <laughs> now, in calling you mayor-elect, um, it's it's kind of interesting because I guess you were re-elected because you were interim mayor when Sorensen left, right? So you had a little bit of experience in the mayor's chair, but now you're officially elected mayor of Banff. Do I have it right? That's correct. I had the very unique experience of having a mayoral internship, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Uh, which is an opportunity most don't get. So I was a counselor and was appointed when Mayor Sorensen became senator and then ran for election to the mayor's chair. So not so much re-elected as mayor, but certainly re-elected to council. But you, yeah, and you're not a newcomer to um, council in Banff. You actually, you've been around for a number of years now, right? Tell us a bit of your background and how you ended up in the mayor's chair. So I... Ran for council in 2013. I had been a reporter at our local paper here, and I had the municipal beat, and I was really interested in all the issues and learning more about the municipality. So I ran for council when I was 26 years old, <laughs> and uh, that was certainly an anomaly for our community and certainly even more of an anomaly outside of our community whenever I went to AUMA. Yeah. You know, some people uh, sometimes thought I was Mayor Sorensen's daughter kind of thing. I can imagine. So, yeah, so that was how I got into council. And then, as you said, got reelected in 2017 and was just finishing that term. Now, Banff is such a unique situation. I mean, you, you have to run the, you know, the operations of the city or the town or whatever, um, but at the same time, you've got the, the resort status and the fact that the national park is involved and all this sort of stuff. So um, what, what is your focus as mayor of Banff? How do you juggle all those different responsibilities? That's a good question. You know, I think that, you know, we work really well with our partners at Parks Canada, and we, you know, consult with them on issues. And, uh, you know, right now a big one of those is tourism recovery and, you know, helping our businesses that have been in survival mode, especially as subsidies from the federal government are about to expire. And we know that, you know, folks have this pent-up travel demand, and so how are we going to provide a good visitor experience for them? And for us, 
as you were saying, you know, unique challenges. Right now, we, we also need to attract our hospitality workers back to our community. So we, we do all these things uh, with our partners, and it, it can be a bit of a juggling act, as you said. And I know with a, a community so heavily based on tourism, it's been a very, very tough go for the last couple of years for Banff and, and Jasper and other areas like that. So is that job one, to, to sort of focus on economic recovery in your community? That's certainly something we heard on the campaign trail loud and clear. And so for us, we'll be going into our service review and budget season soon. And so I think we're going to be looking at ways to show very vigilant fiscal restraint and try and you know, p- help our business community c- come out of this. I noticed voter turnout in Banff was really low. I mean, it is right across the board in this province, but um, do you have any insight as to why that might be in your community? Is it because, you know, you have somewhat of a transient population, people who maybe don't live there full time and are just there to work for a while or any any indication as to why? I mean, I think 2,000 people turned out to vote or something like that. Very low number. Yeah, that was a bit disappointing, to be honest. I know last time we had, I believe, record-breaking. So I had in talking to folks thought that with a, a true mayoral race, you know, not an incumbent mayor running, we, that it would attract more voters. And certainly our community was very engaged during the election. So I, I'm not quite sure what, what happened there. That is certainly something people have said. Maybe people moved away mm-hmm. during COVID and we lost some of that voter base. But I was surprised by that. And I haven't quite been able to <laughs> figure out what happened there. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's so much at stake right now. But I mean, there, there's so many things going on. I think people might be distracted. Um, just tell us, you know, you've got you've got some new faces on council. You've got some veteran hands there. Um, how are you feeling about the team that's been assembled? and uh, the ability to bring them all together and get them pulling on the rope in the same direction? <laughs> well, so we've, as you said, we've got three council incumbents uh, that uh, got reelected, and four if you include me. So, you know, there's some consistency there. And then we've got three new candidates, and I'm excited to hear their perspectives on things. And only the second time since incorporation, this was kind of going back to what you're saying as I was coming on, do we have more women than men on council? The last time that happened was 2007. So I'm really excited to see this new council in action, and I'm motivated and inspired by things I heard on the campaign trail to to lead this council. And how am I going to do it? Just one day at a time. Fair enough. Well, congratulations, and uh, best of luck as you get started, and uh, we'll follow your progress, Corey. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank you so much. That is Corey D'Amato the um, newly elected mayor of Banff. But as I say, she's actually been on the job since uh, early in August when uh, Mayor Karen Sorensen was appointed to the Canadian Senate. Corey took over as interim mayor uh, and was re-elected to the position permanently on Monday night. Yet another woman named mayor in the province of Alberta. All right, continuing our tour around the province, chatting with some of the newly elected councillors and mayors. Going to stop off now in Red Deer. And uh, joining us, we have Ken Johnson, who was elected mayor of Red Deer on Monday night. Good morning, Mr. Johnson, and congratulations. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Shay. It's it's certainly an honor to be with you this morning. And I, if you don't mind, uh, you know, a special shout out to your audience uh, uh, in Red Deer. I, I just wanted you to know that in the greatest city in Alberta, Red Deer, you've got quite a following. So it's uh, it's great to be on board this morning. Well, I, I'm I'm very pleased to hear that. We do hear from a lot of them on the phone and text line all the time, and and uh, we love the audience down in Red Deer. And uh, and thanks for the shout out. Appreciate it. Now, absolutely. Um, Tara Veer, you're taking over from Tara Veer, who had a long history on uh, Red Deer City Council, but so do you. You've been elected yes. councillor twice, now elected mayor, so yes. you've got a pretty good understanding of uh, civic politics in the community of Red Deer. What do you see as sort of job one right now as the newly elected mayor? What's the biggest pressure you're facing? Well, I think the biggest uh, pressure we're facing, and this is one of the reasons uh, that I threw my hat in the ring, uh, Shay, is is really to get in and renew and restore, if you will, a lot of the relationships we have in the city. We, we've got a lot of voices uh, in the city. We've got the business community that wants a, a greater voice and deserves a greater voice. We have the arts community. We have tourism uh, that wants a greater voice, uh, our nonprofits, uh, and so on. So when, when, I, when I look at the collective uh, voices uh, I, I think about downtown renewal as, as, as the first step because it mm-hmm. ties so many of those voices together. It ties, it ties our social challenges, it ties, it ties our economic challenges, it ties our tourism challenges, uh, and so on. And I said during this campaign, uh, and I was so grateful the people of, uh, of Red Deer responded, I said this during the campaign, you know, that our downtown issues are a Red Deer issue. They're a, they're a city issue. They're not just a you know, 12 blocks in the core kind of thing. You know, it's a it's a city renewal that starts in the downtown. And, and uh, that's uh, that's what I'll be turning my attention to in the short term. But but also a shout out, uh, obviously, Shay, uh, to the new voices on our council, to the new people on our council. Welcome aboard. Uh, you know, sort of buckle up, if you will. This is uh, <laughs> this is this is not a journey for the faint of heart. I can assure you. No. Nope. Uh, and and uh, and and welcome aboard with my four colleagues that were returned. Um, and talking about that, I mean, sort of now that you're the mayor, it's sort of your job to be that team leader, the unifier of that council to sort of get yep. everybody working in the same direction. So, yep. what's the plan? I imagine you have to sit down with all of the councillors, new and old, and ones that you know you're just getting familiar with, and sort of put all their goals into a big pile and say, okay, we all agree on this, isn't this where we're going? What's that process like for you? Well, that, that process, you know, Shay, I come from the banking world, you know, was, uh, was my bank uh, background uh, before I went into politics, and it wasn't uh, unique, if you will, to have groups of branches uh, that had different visions, different approaches, different managers, different, uh, different teams, you know, things like that. You know, as I'm I'm a, I'm very much a, a collaborative kind of person. So I'll I'll ask our our council. I'll challenge our council to say, look, if if we could if we could forward the clock of four years, and and it was the day before the 2025 election, what would you like to see on the blackboard, if you will? And that's an old word. Can you imagine that? I don't think you're going to say blackboard much today. Probably but anyway, not. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, but but what are what. What what do you expect to see, if you will, on that blackboard? What what have we accomplished in those four years? And sort of, I I believe in sort of working backwards. So, for example, if we can see a, a more vibrant red deer, a more economically engaged red deer, a, a, a better social um, strategy and fabric in red deer, and all those things, and then what is it going to take to get us there? Uh, and, and that's really the challenge that, uh, and that's a team building challenge because we all come in with different sort of approaches. We ran on different things and, and so on. But if you can fast forward that to 2025 and now you're facing the public, is now it's time to be accountable 
for those four years. What does that look like? And I've always found that to be quite a quite a unifier of people, even if you have uh, a, a different backgrounds or platform points or whatever the case may be. There's a ability to get behind a, a vision that we all create, and that's what I'll be doing in the short term with uh, with our new council. One, you know, and I was reading your uh, some of the statements you made following your your victory on Monday night. And one thing really stood out to me, and I think it's really important. And I'm fascinated to find out how you're planning to do this because I don't know if there is a path through this. But you said <laughs> we are in an extremely polarized and divisive society right now, largely due to COVID, uh, yeah. and, and you want to heal that wound, bring those people together. I yeah. will watch closely because I think it is one of the most important things our society as a whole is facing right now. But how on earth do you go about doing that? Well, you know, certainly the mayor is, you know, uh, I mean, if I if I jump out of the, you know, I'm in I'm in the uh, upper upper story of my house this morning. If I jump out the window, I'm not going to fly upward. I'm going to fall to the ground. I mean, the the mayor needs many many hands and many willing a lot of willingness, if you will, uh, to 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 be able to do that. I I use many many times that people would approach me uh, during the campaign, either by email or in person, as the case may be. Uh, and many, many times, you know, people, uh, I expressed to, to them my personal grief over the divisions that we were, were facing. You know, uh, you know, COVID has done that to us. So essentially, uh, first of all, it's, it's, it's respect for each other. It's taking off labels. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of seeing each other through eyes that really don't value the, the opinion of someone else or, or really don't value, you know, where they're coming from. We, we need to get through this, and I've been very, very clear that, uh, that, that vaccines and, and, and vaccinations and so on are our way through this. Cities, Shay, and I, I'm sure this is not going to surprise you, cities across our province and cities across our country have really stepped into this with a lot of leadership and mm-hmm. a lot of courage uh, and a lot of respect uh, and so on. And uh, really, when we don't have the provincial uh, leadership or, 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 or really what I would call, you know, too, too much of a sort of unbinding of, of, of their portfolio, the health portfolio, the cities have to step in. So we have to do it with respect. We have to do it with understanding, uh, uh, with tolerance. But at the same time, at the same time, we need to get our vaccination rates up enough so that people don't feel like they're they're somehow excluded or or somehow disadvantaged. It's a it, it, it's a it's a big task. I, I certainly admit it. But it has to start with respect. And, and it has to start with a determination uh, that um, you know that safety and and uh, and, and 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 public uh, strain off, off off our system has to diminish if we're going to be successful in this. You touched on something there I want to expand on a little bit, and that's, um, you know, Red is not an island, obviously. No city is. You need to work with other cities, and you need to work with the province, and you need to work with the federal government. How important are those intergovernmental relationships um, to what you're trying to do in Red Deer? Well, that's a tremendous question because, you know, if you, if you look at Red Deer itself, the geographical, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure your listeners all get this, you know, we, we find ourselves, you know, a, a square in the middle of two magnificent uh, cities, not quite as magnificent, mind you, but two <laughs> magnificent cities. 
uh, to the north and, and, and south of us. So, you know, it starts with our neighbors, uh, our, our really excellent neighbors, our, our county, our Rocky Mountain Houses, our Stettlers, our Innisfail, our Lacombe, Sylvan Lake, uh, you, you know, Pinoca, thriving, wonderful cities with with uh, with great uh, great entrepreneurial spirit, great social spirit. So we we renew those relationships. Uh, you know, we approach we approach economic development, uh, frankly, uh, in central Alberta, and and we need to very much in a in a partnership way. You know, as as it relates to the two big cities, you know, my my hat is off. Uh, congratulations to your new mayor. Uh, I knew him when he was the infrastructure minister. Uh, I have nothing but the greatest of respect for him and Calgary's new mayor. You know, as uh, as Red Deer goes, uh, uh, you know, and as Calgary and Edmonton and, and, and all our cities and towns go, you know, it, it, it benefits us all. I mean, you mm-hmm. know this, and, and sure. we know this. Now, as it relates to the province uh, and, and so on, I and you know, I mean, I'm going to be a, a bit jaded here provincially and federally because I've been in civic politics for eight years, and I'm still not convinced. Oh my goodness, I, I can, I can, I can hear the arrows flinging through the air here. Uh, I'm still not, I can, I'm still not convinced that the province or the feds understands the daily challenges and and the, and the daily pressures that cities face. And, and, and so we need to keep reminding them that we're, we're the order of government that makes sure that that bus is on time, yeah. that that sea that train is running, the snowplow is going, and the ambulance and the fire truck are there. And we need the streets and the, uh, and the water infrastructure and all those things that it takes to be able to deliver that kind of quality of life. So, yeah, it's a big task. But you, but you know something, Shay? My, my own philosophy on politics is... Let's let's put down some of, some of the uh, weaponry, if you will, and and let's start thinking about the people squarely, thinking about the people that have elected us to do the best job we can. Well, I, I applaud that sentiment. I think we we need a lot of that in politics right now. And you know what? If it was an easy job, Ken, everybody would do it. You know, there's going to be <laughs> challenges. You know, it's going yeah. to be a battle sometimes. But yeah. that's what comes with the territory, right? Yeah, it is, you know, and and it's very, very humbling, uh, you know, when you decide to do that, you know. But uh, you know, God, God bless everybody. Uh, your job today, the 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 the, the, the person in the, in a fast food place today, or whatever the case may be, it's all about following Shay, uh, your gifts and your abilities and so on, and realizing that we're not in this by ourselves, you know. And 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 in politics. That is the death knell. If you somehow think you're an island unto yourself and you you somehow think you don't need the collective energy and ideas of, of, of people around you, you are, you are definitely in the wrong line of work. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> and I think, you know, after eight years on council, you're fully aware of that and ready for what uh, may come down the line for you. I appreciate you taking some time. Uh, best of luck as you get started on this, and uh, we'll follow your progress and check in now and then. Well, Shay, I, I really, really appreciate it, and a shout-out to all your listeners and all the, all the great, great people of Red Deer. It's been a, quite a treat. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. That Thank is you, Ken Johnson, who was newly elected as mayor of Red Deer. If you think back a few weeks to the federal election campaign, we had a number of guests come on and say, hey, you know what? None of these political parties are really talking about fiscal restraint fiscal responsibility. We've got a trillion dollar debt out there and nobody's talking about how we're going to pay it back. You know, the the plan, if we can call it a plan, was, uh, well, we're going to increase tax, taxes on the wealthy and we're going to crack down on uh, tax evasion. 
that's how we're going to make up these shortfalls with all the pandemic spending. Well, there's a lot of people that have come out lately and said, yeah, that, that's probably not going to work. It's going to take a little bit more than that. So we're going to have that um, discussion here uh, with um, Don Drummond from the Stoffer Dunning Fellow at, and adjunct, adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Um, Don, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. So let's just put this in perspective here, what we're talking about. Um, you know, how much debt are we talking when it comes to Canada? And how do we sort of stack up against, you know, similar countries, other G7 countries? Are we that much worse off? Well, I had a debate where we go for the good news or the bad news first. I'll go with the good news. The good news is our debt burden is still relatively low compared to other countries. Uh, having been responsible for fiscal policy in the 1990. 1990- 1990s, when we had uh, a semi-crisis, we used to be very thankful that Italy was a member of the G7, because otherwise Canada would be at the far right of every fiscal chart. But Canada, for quite a long time, has been the good side of the chart, at a lower debt burden, way lower than the United States, way lower than uh, the Japan, for example. Uh, so that's the good side of it. Uh, the bad side of it is our debt burden has almost doubled uh, in the last two years. Uh, it, it's probably most helpful to look at it in proportion to the size of the economy. It's the same thing as your household debt. Right. Uh, yeah. If you have double the income of your neighbor, you can also support a, a higher amount of debt and vice versa. You have half the income. And we were running around 30% of our gross domestic product, and we've jumped up to about 50%. So that's a very worrying trend. And, and I guess adding on to that, as you indicated in the introduction, uh, nobody has a plan to get that down anytime soon. They all the plans of all the political parties just had it going down ever so gradually over a long term. And, and that's really reflecting a group think that has swung across the entire world. Right, and yeah. Virtually every sector and every country in the world is beyond their eyeballs in debt. And we've got hooked on this now 20 years of having lower interest rates, interest rates below the rate of growth. And if that always continues to be the case, then life will be fine. But the big question is, will that always been the case? It has not been the case over long periods in history. So does history repeat, or are we in a new era where interest rates are always going to stay super low? And that's basically what people are betting on. Uh, like you say, I mean, when we take a look, governments around the world, uh, because of this pandemic, have brought on massive amounts of debt. But I think the point that you're making is, Canada has brought on more debt than some of the other countries. We've always been in a good position, but that good position we've enjoyed has been eroded a little bit over the past couple of years, right? Yeah, certainly we've had one of the more. Not, not There's other people in our company, but we've had one of the more... Um, one of the larger responses to COVID, um, even relative to how we were hit health-wise, we had the government acted very quickly and Mm -hmm. very fulsomely on things like the emergency relief benefit and the wage subsidy and assistance to to businesses, and many of those programs are still in effect, although there's thought right now of phasing down some of them, and of course the economy got got hit, so revenues by themselves went went down, uh, although not as much as, as had been anticipated. But, you know, we've seen these rises in debt before, and if we were to bring it back, that would be a necessary cost of dealing with the pandemic. But the question is, uh, how much effort should be applied to getting them down? As you said, there's any little tax tweets that are going to come are not going to make much of a dent in it. And if we rely upon economic growth with the aging of the population and our fairly modest rate of productivity growth, that's not going to bring it down anytime soon. Uh, the see how we did a report this summer which suggested under what we thought were reasonable interest rates and economic growth assumptions that the debt burden actually would continue to rise right through 2055. 
Uh, the government in its budget produced a long-term chart that shows it would go down somewhat, and that is possible, but all we did is just slightly raise the interest rate assumption and slightly lower the growth rate assumption, and it's going up. That, then we've got a problem if yeah. that's the kind of scenario we're looking at. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, we, you know, in terms of wrestling it, you know, through spending cuts or increased taxes, there's not a lot being talked about in those areas. So we really are banking on, you know, things, interest rates staying low. But as that margin gets smaller, debt to GDP, um, what, what's the impact of that? How does that affect the way governments operate? Well, if, if, if interest rates stay really low, that will be all fine. But yeah. if they go up, and I'm not talking about going up to where they were prior to 20 years ago, just going up fairly modestly, then more and more of the revenues that we Canadians send to Ottawa will get spent to paying interest in the public debt. And obviously, we want the vast bulk of that to go for health care and education and the like. Uh, our darkest days in the 1990s, 34 cents of every revenue dollar went to pay interest in public debt. You might as well just put that in the fireplace and light a fuse to it. That's just not useful way. That's paying for things you've already consumed. Mm-hmm. And that number is very low right now, even despite the high debt, because, again, the interest rates are very low. But that would be the main danger. And if you got into that kind of difficulty, or you get downgrades in credit rating, and you have difficulty borrowing money, then you get back into that semi-crisis, and then you have to have a knee-jerk reaction that's extremely disruptive. But it's not even, as first base, is not even discussing whether we should have spending restraint. There are still plans to add more spending. We're, we're still going well, the other the direction. Yeah, the troubles are out and working full-time. You know, the next big-ticket item would be the party ran, and the NDP also ran on a pharmaceutical, national pharmaceutical plan. And that's going to be a, a major expense. Uh, there's all kinds of issues within that. You would think in an era of fiscal discipline that would be debated that there aren't being debated. Would there be co-payments, or is it going to be 100% pu- publicly funded? We have between 8 and 13% of Canadians who cannot financially afford their pharmaceuticals. We could fill those gaps at a lower cost. We don't necessarily need to replace the whole thing. I'm not saying which way we go, but you would think you would have that kind of debate. But that debate doesn't happen because there is this global sentiment at the moment that spending and borrowing is free. So why not just add more? So I, I, addressing that attitude is probably the first step even before we get the thoughts of spending restraint. You know, in terms of the global positioning, because I, I was really surprised, you know, having covered elections for a few decades in this country, there's always somebody talking about balancing the budget. There's always somebody talking about some form of fiscal restraint. And there was nobody in this last election. Is You're saying that's universal? That's a global perspective simply yeah, because there, of interest there rates? there is no constituency virtually anywhere in the world for that right now. And I hate to say it, but I don't think a political party would have garnered votes by taking that attitude. And, and if they were being honest about it. You know, for example, let's put the counterpoint. I know I'm speaking in Alberta, but the perfect counterpoint to look at is the Ontario budget because they waved around their hands and said by 2030 their debt burden would come down, but they're assuming program spending would only grow at 2% a year. So that that's just barely covering inflation. That's not covering even population growth. That would have very severe consequences, but they weren't honest about those consequences. They just said, look, that's not, that's not a hard thing to do. We'll bring this down. We'll just have a little bit of spending constraint. Uh, sorry, you know, healthcare is probably going to be growing at 5 or 6%, and you're providing 2%. You're not telling people there's going to be consequences of that. And it's all people don't want to hear that, and that's not the attitude right now. I mean, as you mentioned, governments around the world are debt, but households as well. Mm-hmm. So we have a record high household debt burden, and 
just look at the, the mortgages, that how much mortgages have gone up in the last year. Maybe people are worried about it, but they're doing it nonetheless. So everybody in every sector is stoked up on this debt, and it will have an unhappy ending uh, if and when interest rates rise uh, to any degree. So, Don, last one here, and I think you touched on it earlier, but I want to talk about it a bit more. Um, you know, if you're looking down the road, and we're banking on the interest rates staying low, I mean, that, that's sort of the key lever here. But, I mean, we're seeing inflation go through the roof. We're seeing energy costs go through the roof. We're seeing, um, you know, you're, like you say, increased spending. We know that's on the way with our minority parliament. Um, all indicators seem to be things are getting more expensive, but we're just sort of whistling along saying uh, everything's fine it'll pay for itself i mean it seems like a recipe for disaster well i guess two points and the first one is the bank of canada is making a, a really big bet they're betting that the rise in inflation is temporary part of it's just a mathematical base effect a lot of prices gasoline and accommodation are two examples fell a lot a year and as they go back to a more normal level that gives you a higher rate of increase and that will work itself out over time and secondly we're getting a lot of supplies um Link uh, disruptions around the world. You know, I just the other day I was at a store that has an entire rack of batteries, and about five of the hundred spots have batteries, and ninety-five <laughs> of them were empty. But that you find that all the time, right? Yeah, for sure. I wanted to buy. I wanted to buy a tool that requires a battery, and the tools in stock, but the batteries in certain stocks. Not quite sure what I'm supposed to do with that, but we're seeing that all the time, and that's going to cause inflation. But that will sort out as production comes back whether it does or not. But we've had a supply-side shock to the economy, so we're going to hit inflation pressure earlier than we did. But the second, my final point was, it's not a question of guessing where other interest rates. We need interest rates to go up. Anybody who's a saver gets that. <laughs> there is just no return in saving sure. money. Yeah. And we have too much of an incentive to people to borrow, and that's causing financial risk. We're just ending up with too much debt. I, I'm not looking for interest rates to go back to double digit. But, but live through that. That's not pleasant, but we need interest rates that at least give people the reasonable rate of return on their savings. They work hard to do that and you're getting nothing right now yeah exactly yeah all right okay well we'll see how don great insight we'll see where we go from here and uh, maybe we'll have to check in and, and see how it plays out in the next month or so thanks very much don okay you're welcome bye that is don drummond who is the stoffer dunning fellow and adjunct professor at the school of policy studies at queen's university We're going to turn our attention to personal debt because Canadians got an issue there, too. You remember when this pandemic started, there were a lot of stories about people who were still working, but because of the pandemic, weren't traveling, weren't going to movies, weren't going out for dinner, all these sorts of things. And they were reporting that a lot of people were sitting on a lot of extra disposable income. And to be sure, there definitely are people that are in that position. But on the other side of that coin, there's a lot of people who ran into real financial hardship because of the pandemic. You know, they their businesses were shut down. They lost their jobs, all these sorts of things. And in many cases, they took on a lot of debt. And already they're starting to feel the impacts of that, and it's having a very negative impact on their quality of life. So joining us to chat about that, we have Jennifer McCracken, who is Senior Manager and Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. Jennifer, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. So, I mean, when we take a look at this, just, you know, when we, you know, there's the surveys of Canadians and how their feelings and things like that. How much debt are we talking about? How many people are finding themselves in a situation where, okay, now I've got a bit of a problem with too much borrowing here? 
Yes, so we conducted our fourth annual affordability index, and we did find a lot of Canadians are reporting a struggle. So uh, one thing that was interesting is we had about a quarter of people report that they incurred new debt since the pandemic. And those that were carrying balances and had debt prior to the pandemic, over 40% reported that they saw it increase. And and it, precisely what you were saying in the intro there, it's not that people were reporting uh, increased debt levels due to overspending. What we're finding is that people are reporting increased debt due to the cost of living. And Canadians are struggling with just putting food on the table and reporting in high numbers uh, that they're struggling with housing costs. So this does seem to be um, a, a pretty big problem all across Canada. We know that um, Albertans specifically reported that they are saving less and that yeah. they did see their debt levels increase as well. So, so um, got a it's, it's, sword it's sword. a topic for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is, no doubt about it. Now, when we talk about this debt, are we talking credit cards? Are people taking on loans? Are they remortgaging? What kind of debt are they taking on? In terms of the new debt, it, the most common type of debt was credit card debt. And Yikes. that would indicate, again, that I mean, obviously higher interest and that the reason for the debt is to just cover basic necessities. And it's a, a more accessible debt to obtain a credit card. And um, they're using it really just to cover other basic needs. Now, you talk about, um, you know, saving. I think for, that, that's right out the window for a lot of people, given the position that we're <laughs> in when we're talking about that. But obviously, things are just getting more expensive. We just had the inflation report come through, you know, the highest it's been, uh, you know, in 18 years. Um, so it's not getting cheaper, and it, it, there's no relief in sight. So I, are you anticipating that this is only going to get worse in the coming months and maybe in the next year or two? is going to continue to be a problem because we know that of the Canadians in the survey that reported that their savings were impacted, um, it was the fact that they're using savings to spend on essentials, so it goes back to the inflation discussion, or they reported for job loss and reduced income. And we had over 40% report that they're not saving at all. And when we sort of project forward for retirement, uh, we had a lot of individuals report that they don't feel that they're on track for retirement and they have not saved enough. So it's it's a bit of a twofold issue because we need uh, Canadians be feeling comfortable that they can meet their expenses, that the cost of living is affordable, that they can afford the housing costs. We want Canadians to tackle their debt and, and not carry as much personal debt, but we also want them on track for retirement. Yeah, And so you can see what this pinch is doing uh, for so many folks. And it's not just people that have children and have a family. Uh, We know seniors are impacted. And anybody who's living off of some type of fixed income, when we see essentials and costs go up, it's whittling uh, their ability to save. And if they have any savings, they're continually dipping into it just to meet their basic expenses. You know, and Jennifer, in your survey, and not surprising, a lot of people that are finding themselves in this position are reporting it's really having a negative impact you know, on their quality of life, their mental health, and you can understand why, but just how widespread is that being reported right now? Oh, across the survey, um, there was a high percentage of uh, Canadians that were reporting the standard of living was eroded. One interesting finding, though, is that we saw, if you sort of like drill down into the results, there was a segment of folks that live in British Columbia, we're calling it the haves versus the have-nots, 
they reported a greater capacity to save. They were they were more likely to report that they had savings, and they were um, ones that said that the you know the pandemic really didn't have that significant impact on their life. The decrease in discretionary spending for vacations and eating out actually seemed to have a positive impact on their balance sheet. Where we saw Canadians most struggling was actually in Atlantic Canada. So we're calling them the have-nots. Uh, they tended to be women. They reported the highest number of new de- uh, new debt and acquiring new debt. Um, they were most likely to report that uh, the cost of living had impacted their savings. And um, they also reported the lowest amount of savings during the pandemic. So if we're actually to sort of take a look at the country, it appears based on our survey that Atlantic Canadians are struggling more than others. Um, so in this position, and, you know, we're talking about a lot of people, a lot of people from coast to coast finding themselves in this situation, feeling like it's having a negative impact on their quality of life. What do they do? I mean, it, seem, it can seem hopeless when we're seeing, you know, just things getting more and more expensive. And uh, what, what should they be doing? Is there a way out of this? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually, because, you know, there's only so much you can do in terms of whittling down, you know, the, the hydro bill or, you know, the telephone bill. And yeah. do we need cable like those? Yes, that's going to have an impact. But um, it, it is a bigger issue. Um, obviously, I encourage all Canadians to sit down and have a budget, have a plan for how they want to spend their money. Um, if we find that individuals are servicing high uh, levels of debt, it is going to impact their ability to save and meet their expenses. So one thing that all Canadians can do is seek out advice about how to deal with their debt. There are options other than bankruptcy, and um, a licensed insolvency trustee will always offer a free initial meeting to walk someone through those their options. So that's something every Canadian can do. Once someone has a plan in place to resolve and deal with their debt and really be on a plan to be debt-free, they are presumably will see an improvement to their quality of life and to their ability to meet expenses. Uh, the other piece is having a plan uh, for savings and, and savings for a nest egg, uh, savings for an emergency. I think the COVID-19 pandemic probably brought an awareness to everybody across this country of yeah. how important it is to have a contingency plan. And of course, again, the savings for retirement, which is, is something that all Canadians, even if it's just $25 a month, um, you should pay yourself first, if at all possible, at any point in your budget. Okay. I mean, it sounds simple, right? But it can just get overwhelming at times, I think, for a lot of people. Because, I mean, the, the bills just keep coming, and it gets harder and harder for some people. Yeah, and, and you know, this is where having a plan around, um, you know, what type of profession you're in, what are your income sources, and um, a lot of people just want that stability. I yeah. think that's really what you're hitting on, is that they, they just want to know that the bills are getting paid, they're on track for their savings, and we know that there there's like these unexpected events like the pandemic, nobody could have predicted this. Yeah. We know there's, you know, in Alberta, depending on the type of sector people are working in, there can be highs and lows and fluctuations in income and in certain industries. And so it's it's really having that plan in place to, to the extent that you can to deal with the unexpected. And when you have those stable times where your income remains steady or high, or at least that you, you're on track in meeting your budget, socking away as much money as possible to deal with any other uncertainty that could come down the line. All right. Good stuff. Great advice. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.